was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So listen, I've got a question for you. Do you ever feel underappreciated for some of the things you do for your employees? Maybe you give vacation days on people's birthdays or you bring in lunch from time to time or you do things that, for whatever reason, don't seem to get appreciated. My next guest, Nick Gray, went through the experience of planning a company-wide retreat when he found out that his employees we're not going to be able to attend. And it left him feeling somewhat jilted. And as a result, he decided that he had gotten to a point where he could no longer run Museum Hack, a 50-employee company with almost $3 million in revenue. It was the trigger that made him decide he wanted to sell. And in this episode, I think you are in for a really special treat. Nick really shares with tremendous candor uh, his own experience going through building Museum Hacks. The, The interview can be broken down in a couple of steps. The first chunk really is how he structured Museum Hack to go from a business that was dependent on him personally to one that had almost $3 million in revenue, doing thousands of museum tours a year in cities across the United States. What was his formula for getting the business less dependent on him? Take special note for his definition of a a job audition and how it compares and contrasts to a job interview. The second part of this discussion with Nick is really about how he went through the process of selling his company, in particular in this case to his employees, how he valued it. I really liked his formula for figuring out what it was worth to him, how he structured payments, how he ensured that those payments would be in fact paid over time. Lots of really transparent, thoughtful input uh, from Nick Gray. Enjoy. Nick Gray, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Awesome. Hello. Museum hack. Okay, I got to confess, I read your blog, and when I read about Museum hack in general, but also the sale, I couldn't help but get you on. Before we go any further, what is the URL of your blog? Where do people find your blog? My website is www.nickgray.net. Make sure you do .net, and I got a cool blog there where I share business, whatever. No, every entrepreneur needs to read your blog. Okay, so Museum Hack. Tell me about this business. What, what on earth did you guys do? Museum Hack may be one of the weirdest businesses that you have or haven't heard of. We do renegade museum tours, 
at some of the best museums in America. And this is a real live guided tour. So it's not like an app or a piece of software. You actually show up, we sell tours and tourism. But what's special about our tours is we hire people like stand-up comedians and Broadway actors who lead those museum tours. They work for me, not for the museum. Man, those guys must be hard to find. Like I get it in New York, it probably wouldn't be hard to find struggling actors. But like you're in Arkansas or yeah. <laughs> I guess there aren't a lot of museums in Arkansas maybe, but how do you find great people in markets that aren't necessarily um, hotbeds of talent? I got a great, super good question. And that's limited our growth because we only are in metropolitan, major metro, New York, DC, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, where there is that type of community of people, frankly, also who are willing to work on a part-time basis because our tours, we do, when we started in New York, you know where we reached out to was a lot of the theater and comedy and uh, science teacher community actually, reaching out to people that are musicians that are used to piecing together their lives as freelancers. This fit in really well there. So give me the pitch. I'm like, a, I'm a, uh, I run a off-Broadway production uh-huh. uh, and, and you come to me, like, what would you say? Like, because I'm imagining it's not a lot of money or maybe it is. Tell me, tell me what you would say to get me to come do a tour for you. Basically, this is the best job that you'll have. You get to run around what we think is the best museum in the whole world for two hours and show people your favorite thing. See, but we, Nick, I'm busy. Yeah. I got a lot of, I mean, I, you know, I got auditions. I got, I got all kinds of stuff going on. I, like, how, I, I'm not sure if I have enough time. Well, we also pay really well. We also pay way more than you're making as a theater community. When we start out, our tours would give people $100 per tour. And that, that's good money to do a two-hour tour and get $100. Now, because of the way and, and legal things and paying, it works out to about $35 an hour that our tour guides get because we pay them to come before and afterwards. But we pay really, really well. And that has helped us attract really the most important thing to our business, which is the people. Got it. Okay. And labor costs, by the way, for our business were sometimes operating as high as 70% of all our revenue. We've really had very high labor costs. Right. Okay. I want to get to how you find customers for the tour. But before I go there, tell me about the genesis of this business. Was it, I mean, did you start as a museum junkie yourself or what was the, how did it actually get off, get off the ground? Never was a museum junkie. I thought that museums were boring, that the art was stupid, that I hated that you had to be quiet inside of these huge places. And I frankly, it all started off of a romantic date that this woman brought me on to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It was our third date and she just showed me around the space in a way that I had never had someone talk to me about. She, like she spoke to me at my level which is like a third grade reading level. And (laughs) we just saw things. We saw painting and sculpture and Egyptian artifacts. And it unlocked within me that tour that she gave me, a sense of curiosity about art and museums. And I just started to go back and show my friends around. I'd explore the space. I thought like, hey, I could go drink at a dive bar in Brooklyn or I could go drink at the museum. I'm gonna go drink at the museum. And, and so it all came out of that really. But, but okay, so I get, I get the, the idea. How did you actually make a business of it though? Like, when start, did you get the idea to start charging for it? Yeah, I really struggled with that because it was a hobby and I never wanted to charge for the tours. I never want, felt so dirty to me to make money. Probably folks who listen to your podcast that started out with a hobby 
and then turn it into a business may have wrestled with this same thing. I lost sleep over it. Mm -hmm. Eventually though, I had so many people wanting to join these tours. This blog wrote about it and said that Nick Gray's Museum Hack Tours are the best thing to do in New York City. 1,300 people sent me an email overnight wanting to join one of my tours. And I knew then that like this was much bigger than me. Wow. So, like, sorry, what was, the, what was the blog that wrote about you? The blog was called Daily Candy. They've since gone out of business. Do you ever know? Oh, sure. I remember that. Yeah. 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 And so they wrote about you and literally you got 1,300 emails saying- 1,300 emails tour? overnight of people wanting to join this tour and it just blew up. And I had been thinking about other tour guides, but yeah, that was the moment that I said, okay, this is bigger. And then, so you started offering your own tours, right? Where you personally gave the tour, yes. right? At yep. what point did you flip the switch and think, okay, I gotta, I gotta start hiring some people? I think it really was when that article came out, I was getting my friends to work with me. And like any new small business, when you have your friends working for you for free, it's awesome and it's incredible and I never could have got here. But you also can't hold them accountable. And that's what happens when you start to pay people to work for you. There's that sense of accountability. And so for me, I knew that there was so many more people out there that were just amazing tour guides and amazing talent. Maybe they weren't a tour guide yet, but I thought they could be. And I knew that for me to get them to come on, I'd have to hire them. I had experimented with having friends work for so long, but yeah, like that was the moment where I started to charge for the tickets. The first time that I charged for a tour and I let it felt so awkward to me that at the end of the tour, I gave everybody their money back. Seriously? <laughs> yes, yes, it felt weird. I was like, I had so much fun. I can't take your money for this. <laughs> You're like the reluctant entrepreneur. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you built an amazing business, so I wanna hear more. How did you go, so obviously Daily Candy, it's Daily Candy, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that got you on the map. But once that had sort of run its course, how did you find customers for the tours? The big thing for us was uh, TripAdvisor reviews. We knew that we needed, beyond word of mouth, by the way, when I was doing free tours for my friends, I'd try to have them be like, hey, if you like this, let your friends know. Nobody would recommend it. But the minute I started to charge for things, hmm. people started to take it seriously. I think they thought it was a scam or something before. Like, <laughs> like what are you gonna sell me? Why are you doing these weird tours? But when I started to charge for it and, and really kind of like productized it, that made it real. That really drove it for us. Got it. Okay. So TripAdvisor reviews, how did you get people to write a review? We would let them know. Like we would pour our hearts out into an amazing, amazing experience. And when you're with somebody for two hours as a tour guide, and you can hear how excited I am to talk about this now, just imagine that's me and you face to face for two hours at this museum that I truly love. And I would tell people, I say, look, we're a small business. The only way that we can find out and get more customers is if you share about us on TripAdvisor, it would really mean a lot to us if you would write a review that would help us grow this business and do more tours for more people. So it was a straight up ask. It was a straight up ask. Got it. Where did, when did the business go from New York only mm -hmm. to, to sort of expand? What, what triggered that expansion? The first city that we did was Washington DC and it really came out of our customers consistently asking, we want this somewhere else. DC arguably is the biggest museum city in all of America. There's so many incredible museums, all the Smithsonian's, there's free museums there. 
For us, this was the test. Are we going to be able to grow this? Is this just something in our own backyard that only works in DC or, or sorry, that only works in New York? Or can it truly grow and can we build a multi-million dollar business out of this? Speaking of multi-million dollar business, how big did you get it before you decided it was time to sell? Based on revenue, the, when I sold the business, we were doing $2.8 million a year. That's a lot of museum tours. <laughs> yeah, like how many museum tours is that? I think each year we, we tallied it. It's over 10,000. I'd, I'd have to run the number again because increasingly we're dealing with B2B clients and we can talk about that, but they are hiring us for things like team building activities and those pay a lot more than the average visitor would. How did going B2B change your business model? I would imagine, for example, you needed new people or different, different people to, to fulfill that? Really, we needed to give our tour guides more work. We needed to give our tour guides hours during the week so that they could continue to commit their schedule to us. And that's why we started, once again, this came out of our customer wants and needs. It was like a holiday season and people were like, can I have my company party with you? Can I bring people to do a tour? And we did a couple of those and it was great money. They'd fill up the whole group and it seemed like a no brainer for us to start to do that. By the time you sold at 2.8 million in revenue, what proportion of your revenue is coming from B2B versus the B2C business? I don't know that exactly. I would guess half of it. Oh, wow. So, so substantial. Okay. Yep. Got it. Got it. So you're 2.8 million. You're doing thousands of museum tours a year. I mean, for those watching on YouTube, they can tell you're a young guy. What, what was the trigger that made you think, okay, now is the time to sell? I can say, and I'm trying to think how to word this for people, but for your listeners, they are business owners and operators that have seen their businesses grow. I think my business got, the short answer is, things got to be way too complicated for me. That we had 50 employees, maybe more even at times because of seasonality, and managing those people and giving them a great place to work at 50 people is completely different than what I started out, which was just doing fun renegade museum tours. So that's the short answer. I mean, there was one specific moment when I knew that it really wasn't my business anymore, which I could talk about if you're interested, but, but that's kind of the summary of it. Yeah. Give me the moment. What was it? There was one particular moment that was very frustrating for me, and that is that I was trying to plan like a company retreat for the whole business, and we had had a great year. I had made a lot of money, and I wanted to give back, and I wanted to pay for everybody to go on a vacation together, and I was going to do it during the slowest time of our year because our slowest time is January. There's very few tourist activity. They've all traveled. There's no business stuff. And of the 50, before we go further, of the 50 employees, uh, 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 those include, I'm assuming, the tour guides themselves. Is that correct? Uh, yes, those include okay. the tour guides. And so if you're running the numbers in your head, wait, 2.8 million, 50 employees, I would say that the majority of our staff are tour guides that work okay. part-time. They work nights and weekends. And some Got of them it. have come on full-time, but yeah. So you're figuring, let's bring the whole team together, including the office staff, along with the actual guides themselves, and yes. do a retreat. Yes, yes, yes. And let's do a retreat during uh, a week in January where there's not. Long story short, it became very contentious 
because while I was willing to pay for all the expenses of the travel and the trip and everybody's food, they wouldn't have to pay a dime. Many of our part-time workers, frankly, weren't going to be able to book any work time and they would have to give up and leave from some of their other jobs. And they would have to, if they were working at a restaurant, for example, they'd have to sacrifice that restaurant wages that, that they would have made. And I wasn't in a position to be able to pay them those lost wages. And it just became a very complicated, contentious issue that I left feeling like, I can do no good. I tried to give a free vacation, all expense paid. And now, frankly, people were mad at me. And I think it, like that, there'd been other things bubbling up, but it was that moment, something I had worked so hard that I realized I don't have the skill set and the expertise to manage a business of this size anymore. Why was that so, or I should maybe ask you a different, what was it about not being able to organize the retreat that, that was so emotionally painful for you? I, I love retreats. I love live events. And I was writing a very large check. It would have cost me between fifty dollars and $100,000 perhaps. And I felt like something that, that, that I was so passionate about, I had a hard time. At that time, now I can see, right? Because I didn't have the empathy for somebody that lives paycheck to paycheck and would have to sacrifice wages. At the time, it was hard for me to see that. Um, and it was just, I felt like I was trying to do something so good and I couldn't see all the other views of how it was that it was very hard for me. Mm. Man, it, it brings me back, to be honest, Nick, to a time in a company that I used to run, God, 20 years ago. Mm. And I had the idea of, of um, you know, wanted to make a great culture and you'll bring the dogs to work and we'll all go on vacation together and there'll be drinks on Friday. Yeah. And, and nobody seemed to appreciate anything that I was doing. And it really hardened me to employees. I, like to this day, I'm yeah. very skeptical of team building stuff. Huh. I really do see the value in team building activities. And so I want to kind of challenge you on that. We've had so much success in bringing people to the museum that have never been there before. Huge companies like Google and GE and Nike bring their staff to the museums on team building activities with us. But I think there are a lot of different perspectives and getting buy-in and there's all the stuff that's been said, I'm sure you know, about when you start a company and you think you'll have unlimited vacation policy. <laughs> right. I mean, we did that, right? It's great until it isn't. Yeah, it only takes one person to take advantage of it, right? To, to, to realize that you're, you're trying to be a cool place to work and all of a sudden it has to be this bureaucratic thing. Y yes, that absolutely happened to us. Yeah, yeah. And that's when it went from being fun, it sounds like, to being beyond what you were willing or able to, to sort of handle. Yeah, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I'd be doing this museum thing for, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years and would build a multi-million dollar organization. Um, never, never thought that, that this would happen. Why do you write about it? I like to write. I've met so many great people through my blog and I find that being a business owner, it also helps me to kind of collect my thoughts. I think there's so much that I've learned from your book, from talking to other entrepreneurs 
that because of the way that our sale was structured as well, I think I had an interesting story to tell that I haven't seen elsewhere, right? This wasn't a venture-backed startup. I never took any debt. We, we sold to some of our employees that you don't hear that talking about a lot. And so I thought it was a good story that somebody else maybe could give them an idea of something like that. Yeah, and I want to get into the actual sale. Before we go there, though, it sounds like you implemented some of the, the kind of core ideas in Built to Sell, the idea of like making your business less dependent on you personally. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people conceptually get that, like they understand it. But when it comes to the actual, the doing, sometimes it falls short. What, what did you find to be the most helpful tactics uh, that enabled you to build Museum Hacks so that it wasn't dependent on you personally? I'm thinking now the very visceral memory that I have of the first time that I ever went on vacation and didn't check my email for a couple days and how hard that was. I mean, I'll be honest, it was not easy. It's a very scary, scary idea. And I say that first and foremost to say that I'm not perfect at this, that even later I still would check email. I'd still keep an eye on stuff. But the way that I removed myself was just first hiring other tour guides Because remember, this business to many of my friends was entirely built around me and my personality. In fact, one of my most successful friends told me when he heard that I was going to make a business out of this and hire tour guides, he said, that's a terrible idea. Nobody's going to come. The the whole thing is based on you. Why would anybody want to come when you're not the tour guide? Yeah. So how'd you get over that? I think a lot of people listening would be like, yeah, that's exactly my situation. I'm the personality. I'm the big idea guy or gal and they come, my customers come because of me. Yeah. I could never, I could never build something that doesn't involve me. Like, so how did you do it? I'll try to say something that maybe people aren't used to hearing and that's, you know what? To an extent they were right. The tours were not as good as when I was leading them. Okay. But we would never be able to grow if I was stuck to that one point, okay? And I'm also probably biased. I think my tours were best. But (laughs) yes, did we sacrifice a little bit of quality during those early days, especially when we hired new tour guides? Yes, but that didn't mean that it wasn't an incredible product, right? I'm so close to the product that I can notice all the things that are wrong with it Our customers have no clue. They're comparing this tour to the other options, which are docent, volunteer-led tours. And ours were still so much better when we started to pay for the top, top talent. Love it. So kind of lowering your quality expectations very slightly enables you to scale. What else did you do to make it less dependent on you? Did you, I mean, there, there was a sort of way that you delivered your tours did you try to codify that at all did you try to put that into a manual or anything like that we did a little bit of that i can say that when we would do uh hiring for the tour guides we didn't do uh job interviews we did um job auditions right (laughs) where it's like i can read somebody's resume but that doesn't tell me how good they're going to be with people and so we kind of flipped it on their script because this is a client-facing organization, we had everybody come in for live interviews where we could very quickly work through people and figure out who could communicate, who was very comfortable and savvy working with an audience. By the way, stand-up comedians are the best tour guides, in my opinion, 
because they can read people and they can insult the audience. They can do all these things that I never could do. And it works. It's incredible. I can imagine. I can imagine. So what, what would a typical question in one of your job auditions yeah. be? What was your favorite question? Um, something would be, we would say, Hey, bring your smartphone to the job interview. We would have them all together. We'd say, look, uh, take five minutes, find a piece of art that you really like at the museum, load up their website, learn a little bit about it. And then in 30 seconds or less, why should we care? And seeing how they would create and write the content and then communicate that doing the actual job. Jeez, Louise, that's the number one's thing to know how somebody going to do, have them start to do the job. And so later on, we would actually hire people for just a couple hours as a contractor to build and, and start to develop their own tour before we actually hired them as an employee. We'd hire them as a contractor first to see what it was like to work together. Fantastic. Fantastic. I love the notion of, of job auditions. So you actually brought them to a museum. They didn't come to your office. You actually did it at the Met or whatever, whatever. At the very beginning, I can tell you, yes, we did them all at the museum. Eventually wow. it got to be too big and too crazy. And you know where we shifted to? We shifted to a local grocery store here in New York <laughs> because it's a little bit of a stressful environment to be in a grocery store. And there's things that people can talk about and have a story about. It's a public spot. Uh, but for us, it replicated. It was the closest thing we could find that's like being inside of a museum. Here. That's really funny. And there's people kind of walking around wondering exactly. what the hell you're doing. And they're kind of bumping into you. Exactly. And I love it. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Okay, what else? Is, so, so job auditions. Job auditions. Um, okay, so that's You hired some line. people. Yeah, yep. what else did you do? Uh, on the back side of it, on the back end, yeah. I tried to hire vendors and support staff that could get all of the back office things handled. So instead of trying to run my own payroll, we hired a um, PEO to manage all of our payroll and eventually to administer healthcare and things like that. Mm -hmm. In the past, you'd need your own staff member who'd learn about health insurance plans and manage these things and file. Instead, we just got one of these things, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about. I'm not going to call one out, but there's many of them now. And I never could have started my business without that. We hired a bookkeeper from like day one. There was an online system that we found. It's called Bench. And they just handled everything for us. They took all our receipts and everything, trying to outsource as much of that stuff as possible. And then we also made use of a lot of virtual assistants. So setting up a system to handle customer support and things like that really helped. What sort of systems did you have around customer support? Was there anything novel that you did? Because you, I mean, dealing with the public, you must have like any number of crazy customer, not complaints, but you know, like customer issues. Like, mm -hmm. did you have any sort of systems? Did you give them any sort of guidance that could help? I'll tell you, one of the first things that we did yeah. that, that helped us grow in sales was we would give 100% satisfaction guarantee. And because we're selling a weird product that takes a risk, right? Who's ever heard of a renegade museum tour? Most people don't even pay for museum tours, right? They're used to free tours. And so that, I think that's kind of customer service or support. I don't know if you think sure. it is. But, but, 
But that promise to people for me was really helpful. And I think we've heard from a lot of people that during the sales process, it really, really helped. I would estimate in all my years, tens of thousands of sales, we refunded easily less than 20 people total. Wow. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So it was basically, it didn't cost you anything, but it made, it accelerated your sales tremendously. Yes. Yes. Fantastic. So let's get into the actual sales. So you have this, this retreat blow up, if you will, not blow up, but you know, this kind of moment where you're like, you know what, I'm not the right guy. Um, what next? Did you, did you like, did you have a buyer in mind? Did you, did you, did you, you know, hire a broker to find you a buyer? What was your next step? My next step was basically to work myself out of the business entirely. I hadn't thought about selling the company at that point, but I knew that I wanted to be, and not that I wanted to be, but just that for the success of people working for me, it was better that I wasn't involved. I think this is especially helpful to know that we have a tendency to hire those with less experience that are on the fast track that are making major strides in their career and being able to give them the support that they need wasn't in my skill set. I had been very lucky to hire what was like a staff manager, then a chief of staff, and then eventually she became my CEO. And that transition of her going from chief of staff to CEO was really the like, boom, this moment, like she's in charge, she can do this so much better. Her name is Tasia. And she is so much better at those things than I was. That for me was like the beginning of my removing myself from the business. And ultimately, it was the beginning of what led to the sale. So you make Tasia the CEO. Uh, she's running a staff. You're continuing to, uh, I guess, what, take the checks? <laughs> or like, how, what, yes, what, what is yeah. your role at that point? You're, you're basically yeah. cashing the money, cashing the checks. Yeah, still had okay. 100% of the business and it was all mine. So I was reaping the rewards, but also I would like to think I was, had a really great job and workplace opportunity for them. And mm-hmm. we had had light discussions about profit sharing or something, but nothing, um, but nothing solid yet. And how are you paying Tasia? What was her, I'm sure you can't share her exact salary, but I'd be curious to know, was it just a salary? Were you paying her a bonus based on some attributes? What were the attributes? That kind of stuff. She really wanted to have the, the bulk of her pay and a guaranteed salary. And that was important to her at the time. And so she received, I could say in the low six figures as a salary to really lead and drive the company. And it was her and... Um, Michael Alexis, who are our marketing director, that were the highest paid individuals in the company and were arguably driving the largest returns. He was responsible for a lot of our sales and Tasia was responsible for making all the product work. Got it. And so, again, I'd be curious. So, so you've got Tasia in place. You've got Michael uh, doing marketing and sales. When does, it, when does it go to the next step from businesses running without you to, okay, I'm actually going to sell it. Well, we had been thinking about for them because it probably was about a year that they both had been running the business. I had stopped showing up for our weekly managers meetings. I really wasn't needed anymore. Sometimes we would go days, if not weeks of speaking to each other because I do have a tendency to be a micromanager 
And that sometimes it's just better if I'm not involved in things, right? There's that fallacy of adding too much value. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I knew, I was savvy that, that these are two very smart, hardworking individuals that are on the growth track and they've kind of maxed out within my business. I have nothing more that I can add to them. I can't, can't really challenge them. I, I didn't know what to do. And so as the year was coming up where we would negotiate what the um, compensation plan was for the next year, I was really struggling with how to incentivize them to continue to stick around and not just for another year, but for many years to come. I couldn't figure out, and we had played some, some ideas, but ultimately they were the ones who came to me leading up to these negotiations that said, hey, we just want to float this idea. We know we've talked about a lot of different things. Would you consider selling the business to us? And I had never thought about that before, but um, so yeah, so that's how it started. Wow. So it came from Tasia and Michael. And so at this point, did you have any sense of what you thought the company was worth? A business like ours is so weird, right? It's a service-based business, but it's also tech enabled. It's really not, but like, you know, there's, there's a marketing side to it. So does it get valued like an advertising agency, which is maybe closer to like one X revenue? Does it get valued like a software company, which could be 10 X revenue? No. Um, I didn't really have an idea, but I knew for me what I would be willing to trade as far as revenues go in a longer term handover um, and for me, that figure was about five years. And so I thought if I could lock in the profits that this business is making right now for the next five years, if I could guarantee what was our best year ever for five more years, would I be willing to walk away from this business and, and give it over to them? So that's where it started essentially. Got it. And so that's how you calculated your number is, could I get, if, if, if you can give me five times profit, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the pre-tax profit, I guess your company was making, mm. then that would be something that you, if you could guarantee me five times profit, you were, you were ready to walk away. That was the number that I started to think about. And there may be people listening to this that are thinking that's ridiculous. That's, that's stupid. Why would you give away the golden goose that, that could continue to just print money for not just five years, but 10 or 15 years. And I knew that if I wasn't going to be able to incentivize Michael and Tasia, that maybe they'd stick around for another year, but eventually they were going to leave. And what that would require at a very deep level would be me to hire their replacements, which is not something... I knew that I'd have to get very involved in the business. It would take at least a solid year. That's assuming that I got it right the first time, which I wouldn't have. <laughs> and so I was making a series of trade-offs in my mind of like, what is it worth to be able to one, lock it in and two, walk away? Awesome. And, and I think those trade-offs are, are brilliant and, and, and certainly something that we would recommend people do. So you, you came to five times profit. Um, 
And, and, and then, so, okay. So that's kind of what your the numbers sort of bouncing around in your head. Is that something you shared at some point with Tasia and Michael, or did they come up with a number first or how did that sort of work out? Those negotiations were difficult. And I'd be lying if I said that there weren't some heated moments during that time. I'm thankful that I had very reasonable and rational buyers of the business that allowed us to think through things. The way that we ultimately structured the deal perhaps was less than that 5X multiple, but I kept 15% of it and I'm still involved on an occasional basis to help think about strategy and some new growth ideas with the business. Got it. And so, so they pushed back on the five times, but, but you agreed to stick around for a period of time and held some, um, a little bit of equity. What was, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm trying to put myself in Michael and Tasia's shoes because I could share I, some ideas or just one yeah, thing I'm go thinking ahead. of was yeah. one of the first numbers that I shared to them wasn't me selling them uh, 85% of the business. In fact, I wanted to sell them 35% or sorry, uh, 70% of the business, but because it's two buyers, then they would each only have 35% and I would have 30. And I heard from them. They said at 70%, it doesn't feel like our business. It feels then like we're almost equal partners. And you've said that for you, this is walking away. And so that for me was, well, okay, if it's not 70, what about 75? What about 80? And so some of that going back and forth, how much before we even come up with a price, what's the percentage for you that will truly make you feel like an owner? And for them, they said that was 85%. Got it. Got it. And, and, and what was their reaction to the idea of five times profit? Their reaction initially was not, I don't know, because I don't want to put words in their mouth, sure. but, but I would imagine that if I were in their position and I was doing all the work and I would feel, at least I would feel like I was doing all the work and I would feel like I could walk away. I think they would have felt like your numbers wouldn't be this without us. And so to, to wrap up this valuation assumes that you're wrapping us up as well. And we're saying that's not on the table. So I can't say and can't think for them what was going through their head. I want to say I'm thankful for how things worked out, but it wasn't an easy negotiation. Yeah, it's a really, it's a, again, I, I can hear people listening to this, nodding their head and going, yeah, because for those who are lucky enough to have a second in command or a general manager or president that, that they've sort of brought in and had them in place for a number of years, uh, that president or you know, could take the view that, yeah, like, but I've been, <laughs> the reason we're even talking about this business selling is because of me, right? And now exactly. you're turning around and putting some gargantuan multiple, how dare you, don't, you know, don't you value what I've created? I can't believe you're doing this to me. Like, I can see it getting really emotional. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then I put also, from my standpoint, right, from from your listeners who own and operate a business, they're saying, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for me. This is my business. I invented the damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you find the middle ground between these two ideas? Because you guys did it. 
Yeah. Um, how do we find the middle ground? I talk to a lot of people. I think they talk to a lot of people. We came from the place of wanting success for, for both. Um, they had some things that they wanted. I had some things that I wanted. We were ultimately able to structure the deal, frankly, because they didn't have, by the way, I haven't said this yet, but they had no cash. They did not want to put down any money for this deal. And so that by its nature raises the multiple and raises the value because I am assuming a certain amount of risk that things are going to work out. Now, I had worked with them for many years, but if you ask my lawyers, this was the dumbest idea ever. These people could have driven the business into the ground and then handed me a set of keys that were worthless, right? I know they're not going to do that. I've worked with them for so long, but that is a risk that had to be compensated for. When there's no cash up front, the valuation and the multiple inherently will be higher. And so how did you how did you structure that piece? So they didn't write you a check per se. Did they borrow money to buy you out or are they basically doing it over time? That's correct. They are doing it over time. And so through the next three to five years, depending on how the business goes, they are writing me monthly checks to pay down a debt and a note that they essentially took out from me, almost like a personal loan in order to pay for this business. Got it. So essentially now, now some listeners are going to be saying, okay, Nick, now, now you, now you lost me because I was with you right up until the point you talked about structuring. But um, if you weren't going to get the money up front, then why not continue to hold it and, and you're going to get your profits over the next five years kind of anyways, if you hold it mm-hmm. and, and in this scenario, you are getting your profits, but it's still a little bit at risk. So help me, what would you say to someone who's having those thoughts? What was your cal- kind of calculus around that? My calculus was that I had hired two individuals who drastically helped me grow my business And if I didn't incentivize them in some way to stick around, I knew with almost certainty that I wasn't going to have them there. And to replace them was that risk that I wasn't willing to do. I, frankly, I'd been doing this business for seven years and I was ready to walk away. I wasn't willing to invest the time and the effort that would have been required to hire those replacements. Okay. I would be at a certain number. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how did, how has it uh, affected Michael and Tasia's relationship to the business post-sale now that they're owners? Massively. It's really, this has been a story of win, win, win in that it's a win for them because they now have a sense of ownership. It was a win for me because I got to get what I wanted and also still be involved. And it's a win for our clients and our customers and our employees because the business is running much better than it was before. Michael and Tasia, with that sense of ownership, that unlocked within them, I think a sense of fire or creative energy that maybe had been reserved in the past. And they've come up with all these new ideas and initiatives that are truly taking the business frankly, somewhere that I could not have taken it to. And you'll benefit, of course, because remaining a 15% shareholder, you, you will, you'll benefit from those ideas. Did, did the formula you guys worked out that, that paid you out over time, does that improve as the 
does the performance of the business improves? Is it a percentage of future profit, for example, or? Uh, great question. No, that formula was locked in okay. at the time of the sale. And I think that's fair because it's now their business and the things that they are doing, they need to be incentivized. Got it. Yeah. Then that makes, that makes sense. So, so you've got your number, you're getting that paid out over time. They've got some incentives to kind of innovate and create, and, and you'll also participate in a smaller way, but a significant way if, Mm -hmm. if they go on to. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like a fantastic outcome for you. I'd love to know what you're up to now. In addition to the blog, I understand you're doing some writing. You've got a new book coming out. Tell me about that. Yes, I have a book. Before I talk about the book, which I want to talk about, I want to say that the way that this deal was structured legally in order to securitize that note and securitize the business to guarantee for me, for example, what if one of them were to get hit by a bus and die? Like, Mm -hmm. Like these are very real things when you've poured your life into the business that that process was very complicated and it was expensive and I spent more money than I've ever spent on lawyers figuring out how, how to legally lock down a sale like this. And I just wanna note and acknowledge it. I haven't spoken about all of the details and intricacies, but if someone is thinking about this sale and going down that road, um, maybe we could have a follow-up chat or something. No, like that. do it now, Nick, do it now. I mean, can you summarize the issue? So, so you summarize, you explain the issue that, that let, God forbid, Tasia yeah. or, or Michael would hit, be hit by a bus. Yeah. Uh, the business was compromised and the stream of your payouts would be yeah. in question. How, yeah. And you said the word securitize, yeah. which immediately sends my mind to 2008 and the big short, and I know nothing about securitization. So explain yeah. to me what that word means and how you did it. Here's why this was important. And not all of your listeners will want to do it like this. They may want to sell their business through time, giving away a percentage each year to their first in command. It was very important for Michael and Tasia that from day one that the deal was signed, they owned all of the business. For them, that's what it would take for them to feel that sense of ownership. And that was part of the negotiation, by the way, that that affected the valuation of the business, that, that they weren't gonna earn it out over three or four years. They really wanted to hit the ground running. Um, and so how does that get structured, right? Literally, I'm signing away my whole business with no money, with nothing, mm-hmm. what happens, right? And so the way that that was structured was a series of legal contracts, debts that were filed with certain state institutions where they lived and resided, things that affected their scores and um, credit, credit reports, scores, actually. Right? we thought that their scores would go down because they were assuming all this debt. They actually went up because it was adding a sense of kind of credit history to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was something that that's very real that you can do that can be securitized with the help of lawyers. And it gave me much more of a sense of confidence. Like, like how do you trust these people? And it was backed with some legal documents. And so, so the downside for them, if they'd walked on, on their yes. debt obligations yes. to you, they would impact, it would impact their credit score. Uh, did you have recourse against yes. their personal assets? Yes. Uh, n- no, the short, yeah, which some people are like, that's crazy. If they miss a single payment, then the entire business is handed back to me. 
Uh-huh. Okay. Got it. So that, that was another point of debate. What if we miss a payment? What if we're in a cash flow crunch one month? How do we start from day one? How much money is going to be in the bank? And so there were many of these sort of intricate details that were not obvious to me that needed to be negotiated, one, to protect myself, but also to set them up for success. <laughs> got it. Got it. That's helpful. And, and where you landed was missing a payment equals you essentially get your business back. Yes. Yeah. And I thought that that was fair because if they had been investing and growing the business, then they should have full confidence to be able to go out and beg friends and family to say, hey, we got something great here, but this is one particular cash crunch. And since that time, while they were very scared of it at the, at the time of the deal, they've since built up a very healthy cash reserve. So that's never going to be an issue. Got it. And, and just to be clear, how long have they owned the business? When, when was the actual transaction? The actual transaction closed, I believe, on April 1st, 2019. So okay. that was almost, by the time this comes out, almost a year ago. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. Now we, we should yes. talk about what, uh, what you're up to now. I'm super pumped about this and it's not a BS book promo. This is something that actually helped me as a business owner. Many people told me as a business owner, you got to host dinner parties. You need to do a mastermind, things like that. I found something totally different and that's just host a cocktail party, whether it's for your customers or your employees or something else. Cocktail parties for me became the formula that allowed me to unlock those relationships. I find this so fascinating because for me, cocktail parties are this kind of awkward middle ground, right? You're not yeah. serving a meal. So there isn't this big crescendo leading up to like everybody sitting down for a meal. Yep. And you're kind of like, where are the appetizers coming out? And what yep. do you do if people don't drink? I mean, yeah. so explain what's your formula for hosting a good cocktail party? I'm so glad you mentioned that. Like, what do you do if you don't drink? Because for the first few years I hosted, I didn't drink alcohol. And still to this day, I don't know how to make a cocktail. Um, <laughs> but it's not about the cocktails. Like the secret is that it's about the people. And that phrase cocktail party for me encapsulates a short time period where the goal is to have conversations and meet some new people. I tried so many different titles for this book and I'm still messing with it. But I can't find anything better than something that happens after work where you get together and you meet some people. My cocktail party is what's totally different is just there's a lot of structure. There's name tags, there's rounds of introductions, and it only takes two hours. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. What's your secret for getting the introductions out of the way? Because that's always an awkward, like, what do you do? Well, I run Museum Hack. Like, it's an awkward sort of thing. How do you get people talking in a different sort of way? Number one thing is to set the expectations. In all of the pre-event communication, you know that there's going to be name tags and icebreakers. I think the introductions are awkward when people don't expect them. And so when we tell people, hey, this is a cocktail party, there's going to be name tags and icebreakers because I love to meet new people. I moved to a big city for the people. And so please come hang out. That really alleviates 99% of the sense of like weirdness. But the second thing is actually asking easy, easy questions. I think the like, number one, well, my favorite one is, and your listeners might think that I'm crazy, but the first one that I ask is, what's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Now, okay. that's not the only thing that I ask. What I ask is, what's your name? What do you do for work? And then what's your favorite thing? 
that you have for breakfast. The reason I do that is because we need to warm people up. Like, you can't ask a question like, what's your favorite book built to sell, by the way? <laughs> you have to ask them because that very question of what's your favorite book is subjective. It's distinct. People will judge you for it. Everybody's like, well, I want to say something that will impress people and they get trapped inside their head. Right. But that's not breakfast. Everybody knows what they eat for breakfast. In fact, they probably ate it that day. And if they do intermittent fasting, then they can show off and tell everybody that they do that too. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. So uh, when's the book coming out? What's the title? Where can people buy it? All that stuff. The book is called The Two-Hour Cocktail Party. Look for it on my website. Who knows when it'll come out? NickGray.net. If any of your listeners want a free copy or something, I'm sure I'll set them up. I'm not doing this to make money. It truly is something that like totally changed my life. It's just a formula that just makes it easy. I love it. I love it. And I'm just so grateful for, for you uh, sharing today. One of the things I've always been impressed with about your blog is the candor and, and uh, how revealing you are about your life. And you, you've done the same for us today. So I really appreciate that. It's nickgray.net. Is that right? Yes, nickgray.net. Awesome. I know it can be lonely to be an entrepreneur. And so listening to podcasts like this and connecting with other entrepreneurs who have been there, done that, is something that is, you don't know how valuable that is. Yeah, no, for sure. And if people want to reach out to you directly, nickray.net, is there, uh, do, do you, are you also on social? Is there, a, is there a Twitter feed you want to throw out or Instagram or whatever you use? I love using all the social medias. I probably share way too much that's not appropriate, but I'm at <laughs> Nick Gray News. But just find me on my website. I try to write back to all my emails. And at the time of recording this, I even include my phone number on my website. I've had it there for like eight years. I've probably gotten only two or three phone calls. They've all been awesome phone calls, but like nobody calls. All right, there you go. It's an invitation. Go call Nick. Don't email him. <laughs> call him. All right, Nick. It was great to be with you today. Thank you so much for everything. Um, best of luck with the book. Thanks again. Thank you very much. And if you haven't reread Built to Sell lately, reread it because even as a business owner, I read it once and rereading it, you get new things out of it all the time. Uh, you're the remedial class. <laughs> I am, I am, I am. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.